Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The reading is taken from um, Hebrews chapter 11, which is found on page uh, 1209 in the Pew Bibles. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith he still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith Enoch was taken from this life, so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised, They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, and they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leant on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. 
He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what they had been promised. God had planned something better for us, that only together with us would they be made perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, uh, let's pray together before we explore that passage. Heavenly Father, we do indeed thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, your clear and present word to us speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It, spe- it speaks the word of your son, uh, the word of his blood, uh, the word that brings forgiveness, uh, the word that assures us of uh, your delight in us because of him. And so we pray, Father, as we look at this chapter together, that we would be those who are confident in your word, confident that you will do as you have promised. Amen. Amen. Well, please, uh, if you've just shut it, please uh, do turn back to Hebrews 11 that uh, Graham read for us as we look at that together as we continue uh, to uh, wander through Hebrews uh, together. It's page uh, 1209, if you have shut it, 1209. The TV series, uh, The West Wing, uh, a series about those who work closely with the US president, had a catchphrase uh, all the way through the series of the show about those who uh, worked closely with the president. When asked what their job was, their reply was simple. I serve at the pleasure of the president. A simple line, I live to please. Uh, It's their catchphrase, but I suspect tonight it could be all of ours. I reckon there's not a person here in this room who does not live to please. We are pleasers. So let me ask you tonight, whose pleasure do you serve at? Perhaps you're someone, and uh, this is many of us, I think, who would live to please our family. We want them to be pleased. Uh, We live to please our spouse or our children or our siblings or grandparents. Or perhaps you live to please uh, an employer or a customer, or a patient. Uh, I want them to like me. I want them to be happy with what I'm doing. 
And perhaps if you're a student or at school, you live to please the examiner. Uh, just uh, at Finn's uh, recent parent-teacher night, Finn in Y4, we were already told that uh, he needs to learn to play the game to please the markers. Uh, do you live to please the marker? I hope I've done enough. Or perhaps you live to please your friends. Uh, and the reward is obvious. If I please them, I'm in. I'm in the circle. And of course, I, I suspect ultimately whoever we live to please, and I think we are all pleasers, Uh, The person we're ultimately trying to please, if we're honest, is ourselves. As I read on a a blog recently, it said, I I serve myself, always, uh, even when I'm serving you. Uh, We live to please. Now the problem is, uh, and uh, you'll have experienced this if you are a pleaser, that living to please is exhausting. Uh, You're never quite sure you've done enough. Uh, You're never quite sure that their pleasure, the one you're seeking to please, uh, will last. Uh, There's always more to do. Uh, But tonight, as we look at this incredible uh, chapter together, we will hear a call to the only service that will not exhaust you. Our pleasure that will last. It is living to please the God who made you. Now have a look at Hebrews uh, chapter 11 verse 6 and you'll see it there, the amazing claim that this chapter makes for us, that you can live in a way uh, that will please the God of this universe. Uh, You can live in a way that evokes his pleasure over your life. How? Well it's simple, it would have been hard to miss as Graham read, did you hear the word that kept coming again and again and again? We live to please him by faith. The life that pleases the God of this universe is a life that trusts him. And specifically, as if you look in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, a life that trusts his son, Jesus. Now that's a life that brings his pleasure. Now Hebrews, as we've seen as we've gone through this series, was written to those who had indeed put their faith in God's son. Now they'd come to him, their king and their saviour. They had received from him forgiveness through his blood. Uh, They'd received him uh, not only as the one who forgives them, but the one who would return to bring salvation, to bring hope. Uh, But as we've seen all along, there are people who, yes, they did come to put their faith in Jesus, but now they're in danger of shrinking back from that life. This life that does please God, they're they're pulling back from it. Now this letter exhorts them to keep going. Now you remember that? We saw it at the end of our passage uh, last week. Have a look at chapter 10, verse 35. And here comes the exhortation to them, these people who had received Jesus by faith but now were pulling back. The author says, don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Keep going. And as we see in chapter 11, verse 6, there is no other way to keep going, no other way to enjoy God's real and lasting pleasure. His commendation, that's amazing, isn't it? Verse 4, you can be commended by the God of the universe. Uh, he can speak well of you, verse 5. How? Uh, when you live a life of faith alone in Christ alone. And so this letter is simply written to exhort us, keep going by faith And what's wonderful about this chapter, it's it's filled with examples of those who have lived this life of faith. But right at the very start, did you see it there, that this faith, this this thing that we need to live by is defined for us. So we're not left guessing as to what we're meant to do. Here it is, verse 1. 
And now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Now there's faith. Now there's really two parts to it, isn't there? Faith is firstly certain God will do as he has promised. And secondly, we are sure it's worth enduring because of what he has promised. So faith isn't just knowing that God's promise to us in Jesus of forgiveness and of salvation, being with him forever in his place, is not just sure that's true, but faith is sure that is better than anything else. And what we have here in chapter 11 is uh, really that definition fleshed out for us, what that actually looks like when faith goes for a walk, when faith lives in this real world. And so we're going to look at these examples. There are only some of them, there are many. And we're going to look at them through really these two parts of this definition, being certain God will do as he's promised and being sure it's worth continuing, worth persevering because of what is promised. Well, let's look at the first uh, part of that. Faith is certain God will do what he has promised. Now, why be so certain in God's word of promise? Why be so confident in the word of our God? Well, because we know the power of that word. The power of that word to achieve God's purposes. Have a look at chapter 11, verse 3, and you'll see the power of this word. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. And so what is seen was not made out of what was visible. The word of promise that is spoken to us in Jesus Christ, the word of the promised forgiveness that he offers through his blood, the word of that promised hope that we have, is the same word that made the universe. All that we see, all that we touch and smell and savour and experience and enjoy, all of that he spoke and it was. From the unseen he spoke what we see. That's amazing, isn't it? What is concrete and tangible in this world came from the unseen, powerful voice of the God of the universe. And for me, this is where our faith's understanding of our world challenges uh, the reasonableness of the materialist view of our world. Uh, Really, all human explanations of a world like ours uh, have to come from within the system of what we see. Uh, It's a self-proving system. What is made surely must come from what is here already. Uh, But now, says faith, verse 3, and now we understand that the universe was formed at God's word, his command, So that what is seen was not made from what is visible, but from his voice. And even the faith to understand that comes from this very word that created all things. A faith knows that the only way to rightly understand a world like this is to understand it through the word of the one who spoke it into existence. And so why be certain as we start to sort of piece together what this faith is? Why be certain God will do as he's promised? Uh, Well, here at the start of all things, it is because of the sure confidence that by that word he made all things. But as the Bible's account of our world goes on, and really in one sense that's what chapter 11 is doing, it's tracing the history of our world for us. As the Bible's account of our world goes on, we go from the creation of all things to the fall of all things. The creation of all things by the word and the fall of all things by mistrusting that word. In fact, the story of Adam and Eve is a simple one. It is a story of a people who responded to the word of God with faithlessness. A failure to trust God's word would do as he has promised. And rather than enjoy God's pleasure that they would have enjoyed by trusting him, 
Uh, They experience damage and death and judgment. Uh, They've set the pattern for us all. It's a pattern that we follow. God speaks his word of promise and we reject it. From this we come to, I think, the second aspect of what it means to be certain God will do as his promise. This tracing of the history of our world. First, we're certain this word formed the world. And second, uh, the examples here show us that we should be certain that he will judge the world because we have rejected his word. Our faith, real faith, biblical faith, takes seriously the announcement of God's judgment on this world. Now you see that in uh, verse 7 in the example of Noah's faith. All Noah had to go on was the word of his God. Uh, It's a word given to us in Genesis 6.13. This is all Noah had to go on. He was told this. God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and this earth. And Noah's got two choices. Put his faith in the prevailing culture that said, business as usual, nothing's going to change, let's just carry on. Or faith in the word of his God's promise that said, I will judge, I will judge. And I've made plans to save you. And so Hebrews 11, by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. And as we look in on these examples, as we look in on as those who have heard the the final word of God in Jesus Christ, uh, clearly articulated to us even in this book that we're reading together back in Hebrews 9.27. Have a look at Hebrews 9.27. There you see that promise again. God's promises is this. He says, man is destined to die once and after that face judgment. I promise you, he says. To be certain God will do as he has promised is to believe God on that, not the prevailing culture. A prevailing culture that still says, no, it's business as usual. And a culture that I suspect seeps into the Christian community. How easy it is to doubt God on this point. You really won't do it, will you? You really won't carry on with that plan. You'll, 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 you'll change. Surely you'll come up with a different plan. Uh, how tempting that is. God won't judge this world. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a prevailing, uh, sort of a, something that's seeping into the Christian community. Again and again, an example of it is this uh, quite popular book in the last few years, a book uh, by the name of, of Love Wins by Rob Bell. He's written some uh, amazing sort of sermon videos. You might have seen them under uh, the series, the Numa series. Uh, But his most recent book, this book, Love Wins, uh, argues quite strongly that no, uh, God will not judge this world. In the end, we'll all be okay. How persuasive, how tempting, how attractive is that idea. Uh, But here we see faith, uh, biblical faith. We take seriously the word of God's promise. I will judge. Man is destined to die once and after that face judgment. We are to be those who heed the word of God, knowing that he will do as he's promised. We hear the promise of Hebrews 9.27, I will judge, but I have made plans to save you in my son. And so we take shelter, as Noah did take shelter in the ark, we take shelter in Jesus. The very storm of God's judgment falls on him and not on us. And so we're starting to build a picture of what it means to be confident in God's promises. First, faith understands God made all, and so he is king. Second, in light of our rebellion, we take seriously God's promise of judgment. And now third, as the examples go on, faith heeds God's call to abandon our faithless plans 
and go with God's plan instead. And it's the example of Abraham in verse 8 that shows us this. Have a look at verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went. Uh, Abraham, in this verse, is a man called out of faithlessness, called to abandon that plan. Uh, If you look at the original point where he is called, it's Genesis 12. Uh, And it's a a chapter that provides a complete contrast to what's just before it in Genesis 11. At Genesis 11, you have almost the epitome of the human plan, the plan that rejects God and his word. Uh, The plan that sees the Tower of Babel built. Uh, where we think we can ignore the God who made all, who judges all, ignore him and make our own plans. Well, Abraham, uh, in Genesis 12, uh, we're told from Ur of the Chaldeans, uh, a sophisticated society of its time, is called to abandon his own plans to build his own future and trust God's promise instead. Now, God's plan is to bring life and blessing. Abraham is called to believe that. Faith, as Abraham displays it in verses 8 to 10, is to be certain God will do as he has promised, out of nothing. He promises this life and blessing. He says, I will bring it out of nothing, just like I brought this whole world out of nothing. And wonderfully, as Abraham's testimony in this chapter continues, we see he experienced that. God fulfilled that promise. He was faithful to it. Abraham sees God bring blessing, the blessing of life out of barrenness. In verses 11 and 12, there he is, an old man, and his wife is barren, surely no children. And yet he is told he will have as many as there is sand on the seashore. And even more than that, here is a man who knows that God can bring life out of death. Now you see that in verses 17 and 18, where by faith he is called to sacrifice his only son Isaac, the one through whom all this promise was to come. And he trusts God, but do you see why he trusts God? Have a look at verse 19. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. He trusted his God. God will fulfill his promise. In seeing Abraham here, I reckon again, we need to say how much more us, how much more should we be certain that God will do as he has promised? Abraham only figuratively got Isaac back from the dead. But we are those who know Jesus Christ who died for our sins according to God's promise, who was buried according to God's promise, who was raised from death on the third day according to God's promise. Not figuratively, but literally, physically. How much more should we who know God's plans to bring life from death, not only for Jesus, but for all who would come to him, How much more should we respond with faith by abandoning our own plans and lining up with his plans which lead uh, to life, not death, which lead to blessing, not judgment? It's the same uh, call, really, this call to abandon our plans and align ourselves with God's plans that we see all the way through this chapter. All the examples are about the same thing. Uh, You see it echoed in uh, Moses' experience in the Passover in verse 28. You see it again in the verses that follow with great victories over all who would come against God's plans. Verse 29, verse 30, it goes on and on. God's spoken plan promises to bring life and blessing about. Promises to bring that even through judgment. Promises that no enemy can prevail against that. 
How much more should we be certain of that because of Jesus? Uh, You know he has made a way through judgment. Uh, We saw that back in Hebrews 10 verse 12. You remember it? When Jesus offered for all one time, one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, finished, completed. And you know nothing can prevail against him because 10 verse 13 says, since that time, he waits for all his enemies to be made his footstool. And you know you have received blessing from Jesus. What incredible blessing. Have a look at 10 verse 14. You have been made perfect forever. That is 10 verse 17. Your sins are remembered no more. They have gone away from you forever. And so the call of this chapter is simple. It's the call that we've had all the way through this book. Keep going by faith. God's promises can be trusted. Uh, They're articulated perfectly for us in the the very start of chapter 12, verse 1, where we're told this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, that is, all of these people that we read about in chapter 11, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And what the author wants us to know, as he did the original readers who were thinking, shrinking back from faith in Jesus, he wants us to know the sheer power of trusting him, of believing God's promise in Jesus Christ. Now look at the testimony. If you want to see the power of faith, look at the testimony from verse 32 onwards. Now see what faith can do. And what more shall I say then? He says, I don't have time to tell you about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel. And I've got to be honest, as I was reading that, this, that verse this week, I was saying, I'm pleased you don't have time. I didn't think I had time to think about them as well. Anyway, back to the, back to the verse. I do not have time to tell you about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who, through faith, have a look at this, conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames. They escaped the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became powerful in battle. They routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead. They were raised to life again. Faith is powerful. Doesn't want you to miss it. Faith in God's word of promise. There's nothing more powerful in this world. And it's not just the testimony of these verses. This room is full of the testimony of faith's power. Uh, If we were to tell each other the stories of how faith has been powerful in our lives, uh, it would be incredible, wouldn't it? I hope that happens in our small groups. Stories of answered prayers. uh, Stories of changes of heart, of behaviour, of attitude, of speech. Faith bringing that about. Trusting God's promise. Uh, Stories of miracles. There would be those stories in this room. Our stories of the incredible miracle of people becoming Christians, people we have prayed for faithfully turning to Jesus. Now faith in God's word of promise is immensely powerful. The author doesn't want you to miss it. And perhaps we don't testify to its power enough. But if the testimony finished there, it would be half a story, wouldn't it? A, a distorted story that some Christian communities get stuck in, the idea of a power religion. Have enough faith and you're bulletproof. Uh, It's a view that essentially detaches faith from the word of God's promise. 
If I have enough faith, that's where all the power is, not God's word, my faith. If I have enough faith, I can lay claim to anything. I can make up my own promises. Uh, Joel Olstein, a a popular US pastor, is an exponent of this, uh, written uh, many books, including one called Your Best Life Now. Uh, Speaking of uh, the life of faith, uh, he takes a verse like Colossians 3, 2, where we're told to set our hearts, our minds on things above. In other words, Jesus, the same thing Hebrews 12, 1 is saying. He says, oh, well, it's not talking about Jesus at all. What it's talking about is the higher things of life. Success, financial increase, preferential treatment, health. To set your hearts, to quote him, to set your hearts on things above is to expect circumstances to change in your favour again and again. Faith equals your best life now. But that's not biblical faith. The first readers of this letter knew that. Remember 10 verse 32? Remember what happened to them when they came to faith? Suffering, opposition, cost. True faith does not equal your best life now. Now watch the balance of testimony the author provides so that we don't miss that. Uh, This stirring list that we've just had in 32 to 35, he, he continues in verse 35. Have a look. These are again stories of those who lived by faith. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and floggings, while others were chained and put into prison. Some were stoned. They were sawed in two. There's your best life now. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. And yet they were commended for their faith. Now, these are not the stories of faith's failures, but faith's victors. Why? And why would we want to live a life of faith if it is a suffering faith? Well, the answer? Because all of these knew that their best life was not now, but then, future. Uh, Which brings us uh, more briefly to the second aspect of that definition we saw in verse 1. Faith is sure it's worth enduring because of the promised reward. If you want that summed up for us, it's in verses 13 to 16 where you see that most clearly. Verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from afar. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. As we move uh, towards a close, let me give you three aspects of this future-focused faith that pleases your God. Uh, Here's how to please your God with your faith. Uh, First, real faith welcomes God's promise from afar. Again, Abraham shows us this in verse 8. And by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed. And he went, even though he didn't know where he was going. And verse 10, why? For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Faith welcomes hope. It welcomes that city from a distance. It's a great phrase, isn't it? It's a call. And I wonder if you do this. It's a call to befriend your future. Uh, Get to know it. Get familiar with it. It's hard for us to do that, isn't it? 
how we gravitate to the familiar. It's hard not for the present and the scene to become our hope. Uh, we're comfortable here. It, it feels right. Uh, even as uh, Liz and I plan a trip back to Australia at the end of the year, all the things we're planning to do are the familiar, the things that we've done already. Uh, that's the way we think. We fix our eyes on the seen rather than the promised and unseen. But the church, the community of faith, is to be in the habit of welcoming our shared hope, our unseen hope. And we're together to become familiar with it. Now welcome it as you would a newcomer, saying to the person next to you, have you met your hope? And we must do that for each other if we are to persevere. It came home to me this week when I reread a quote from a Christian evangelist in Sydney, John Chapman. A man speaking just a few years ago about this idea of welcoming our hope from afar. A man who has now gained that hope for himself just this, just this weekend. Now here's what he said just a couple of years ago. We should contemplate the new creation where we will be like Jesus. Now what a joy that will be. I will be perfect in God's image. The glory which will be revealed will so dwarf our life here that it will take on the significance of it like our first day at kindergarten. Everything changes, everything big. It's wonderful, isn't it, to think that, that that hope that he welcomed from afar, it raced up on him on Friday and now he's seeing it for himself. I wonder if you feel that. I wonder if you feel that hope that's, a, that's far and distant is racing towards you. Are you familiar with it? Do you know its dimensions? We're meant to be like a group of travellers of the church who gather at the end of a day's journey with the Lonely Planet Guide open, talking about a city that none of of us have been to, but we're going to be there forever. Again, it is the word of God that will enable us to welcome our hope like that, will fill our hearts with that hope, will give detail, familiarity to it, giving the unseen shape, seeing who will be as God's people with our God and his place. In the end, the life of faith regards not the present and the seen as its anchor, but the future and the unseen. Because we are certain God will do what he has promised and sure it's worth persevering because of what he's promised. Secondly, and flowing from that, because we're looking for this better country, we'll live as aliens and strangers in this one. Two brief pictures for you from our examples. Firstly, Noah, verse 7. Knowing God's judgment was to fall on the world he knew and could see, he forsook that world to claim an inheritance in the world that would replace it. And then verse 31, Rahab, doing a very similar thing, sees the relentless purposes of God going through her land and she abandons her people to line up with God's people instead. She, all that she called her own, all that was familiar to, us, to her, she abandoned for what was unseen, what was promised by this God. And this is hugely compelling for the first audience of this letter who were tempted themselves to shrink back from Jesus, back to what was familiar, back to their people, uh, Judaism. They'd be welcome back if they went back. So hard to forsake our world, isn't it, for the one to come, but that's the call here. The life of faith doesn't throw away our confident hope because we know we will be rewarded. We know Jesus is coming soon and he will not delay, so we serve at his pleasure and not the pleasure of our people. 
And finally, as we close, one third aspect of this future hope, longing for a better country. As we hold the present and seen increasingly loosely, as we befriend this hope from afar, here's what should happen as you befriend that hope. You should long for it. You should be able to taste it. And tell me, do you long for that hope? Being with your God, free from sin, free from the sort of the stain of sin that that seems to stay with us, free from the guilt of sin as we saw a few weeks ago, made holy, made perfect forever with your God. Your name, chapter 12 says, is written in heaven, in his place. You belong there. He's coming soon. His reward is with him. Do you long for that? As we close, look at verse 21. See someone who does. See faith that has grown in its longing for this promised future, even up to its last day. Verse 21, we meet Jacob as he reaches the very end of his life in this present and seen world. And in doing so, he doesn't speak of regrets. He doesn't speak of what he hasn't been able to do. He doesn't even speak of wrong actions and mistakes, even though there's been plenty along the way if you read the life of Jacob. No, he knows God's gracious faithfulness has outlasted all of that. Here is a man, an imperfect man, who lives as, who dies as he has lived, trusting the promise of his God, trusting that even beyond death there is a better country. And so he dies, as he does in verse 21, in Egypt, an alien and a stranger. He dies perched up on a bed that he knows he's never going to leave. He sees this distant promise and he welcomes it. Here is a father dying by faith, finishing the race and passing on that faith to his sons. And as we look on at Jacob's dying faith, I think we need to ask ourselves how much more, how much more do we have cause to live and die by faith given the hope we have in Jesus? Is there a more magnificent testimony in this world to the mighty power of the gospel of Jesus Christ than a Christian dying by faith? Who at that point is more alive than anyone else in this world. Because all the earthly props have given way, all of them have gone, and all that remains is the refined golden faith that stares down even death and says with Paul in Philippians 1, to die is gain. Do your worst death. All you can hope to achieve is to bring me face to face with my great reward, my God. The one who 11.16 says, is not ashamed to be called my God, Uh, because he has prepared a city for me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word of promise is, well, it's almost too good to be true. Sins forgiven, conscience cleansed, Friendship with the God that we have so rejected and spurned. And yet the blood of your son speaks that better word, that sure promise of that forgiveness, of our future hope. Father God, help us to be those who, like those in this chapter that we have read, live by faith for your pleasure and for our good. Amen.